Escape Pod 443 April 17th 2014 This is As I Wish To Be Restored by Christy Yant Thanks, Robot Lady. Good luck with that whole the children of humanity are returning today thing. Yeah, Al from Quantum Leap left the door open again. I saw the notes. Looks good, though. Let me know how it turns out. Welcome to Escape Pod, the weekly science fiction podcast. Our story this week, hosted by me, one of the only Brits to be working in science fiction who isn't either the Doctor or a bad guy, yet, is This Is As I Wish To Be Restored by Christy Yant. Christy is an author as prolific as she is talented, which is to say she's dead busy and she's great at this stuff. Next up, she has a story in Dead Man's Hand, a Weird West anthology edited by John Joseph Adams. Her work has also appeared in By Fairy Light from Zombie Sky Press, Analog, which is where this first appeared in January-February of this year, Shimmer, Daily Science Fiction, and many more. She's also one of the people behind Lightspeed's recent and massively successful Women Destroy Science Fiction Kickstarter campaign. Your narrator this week last appeared here with Bright Moment. Mr. Lee makes industrial music for fun and occasional money. So, take a trip down memory lane, but don't linger, because it's story time. This is As I Wish to Be Restored, by Christy Yant. Every night I come home and I drink. I trade away the hope, the guilt, the fear, even the love. I think it's love, as crazy as it seems. I trade them for oblivion, because otherwise, I won't sleep at all. I drink until there's no life left in me, until I'm able to forget, just for a little while, the chrome vessel in the corner and what's at stake. Sometimes I hope that I'll dream of her. Sometimes I'm afraid that I will. I have two things that belong to her. The first is a photograph taken at a party in what looks like a hotel. Her hair is dyed red. It doesn't quite suit her, so you know it isn't hers. Like a unexpected note in a melody where you thought you knew where it was going and then it went sharp. She's holding a glass of something pink and bubbly. Maybe it's her birthday. If so, it's probably her 28th. She's laughing. She was really young to be a client, especially back then. Most of the people who thought about life extension were retirees. Mortality was very much on their minds, and they'd have a lifetime to accumulate their savings. Suspension was expensive. I wonder where she got the money. Her file doesn't say. So, in this picture, she's laughing. She's seated, supporting herself with one hand braced against the carpeted floor. Her head is thrown back, and her back is arched. And she's just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. There are other people around her, behind her, just smiling blurs holding drinks. But you get the feeling that she's the reason they're smiling. She's the star they're all in orbit around, like me. I fell into her orbit years ago and can't break free. The picture moves with me through my bleak basement apartment, from room to room, 
Sometimes it turns up on top of the half-size refrigerator, sometimes absentmindedly left on a shelf in the medicine cabinet where I recover it again later and take it with me to the bedroom. I found it between the sofa cushions at least half a dozen times. She follows me, or I follow her. It's been a lifetime since she smiled that smile, and I'm still completely, utterly taken. The one place it never goes is on the doer in the corner. That would just be too macabre, considering. This is the only photograph she left. I often wonder what it was about this moment, this time in her life, that she could have looked ahead and known that this was as good as it gets. In this picture, the cancer's already killing her. She just doesn't know it. She died less than a year later. Pancreatic cancer. It's in her file. I was given her file four years after I started with the company. In a crumbling box of data that needed to be digitized. Those poor bastards. They had no idea what would happen to them in 50 or 100 years on. I wondered at the time whether they might have changed their minds about being chiropreserved at all. Probably not. They were in the immortality business, like we are. They would have paid any price. All early conversion cases, my boss said. We don't really know what's there anymore. The risk of fracturing was high in those days. I've seen the results of fracturing. It's not pretty. The early full-body cases were bad, which is one of the reasons they went to neuro in the first place. The splits in the elbows... The backs of the knees, the buttocks, the groin, anywhere there's a fatty fold, the frozen flesh split wide open. When they realized it was happening, and there was almost no chance of a full-body patient getting out without severe damage, they were all converted to neuros. The procedure is executed with a power saw. I have flipped through the files, brittle and yellowed with age. The metal prongs that held the files together had rusted, and some of them had snapped off when I tried to free the pages for scanning. Her file was near the end. I scanned it and put it back in the box with the others to be destroyed. I didn't really think about why I went back for it. I just wanted to see her smile again. The other thing I have of hers is a note, handwritten on a 3 by 3 inch faded yellow square, the writing runs across it at a diagonal. She wrote it with a fountain pen. I can tell by the way the width varies with the strokes. There are bold strokes, no-nonsense strokes, and the ink is a whimsical green. Was that important to her? This was the last message to anyone who mattered. There's a small stain at the bottom of the paper now, a droplet of liquid that the ink bled into and spread like lichen. Brandy, if it was from five years ago... Whiskey, if it was more recent. I've had the file for a long time. I can't read it now, not really. Not in the state I'm in. It swims in front of me through a bourbon haze. But I know what it says. This is as I wish to be restored. Her wishes were clear. Written there in green ink, splattered and smeared for my ministrations. And that's what keeps me up at night. Keeps me drinking. What would she want me to do? The note is all I have of her, aside from the picture and the file. And the file says nothing. Well, it's not strictly true. 
It's just all I know of her. I have all of her. Well, what's left, anyway? From what I've read, her actual last words were nothing to write home about. She wanted her cat looked after. She wanted water. She was cold. That's pretty normal. Cover my feet, she said to the nurse. I'd like a drink of water, she said. My mouth is so dry. Usually there's no wisdom imparted, no grand finale. We're cold, and we want to sleep. It was no different for her. Her final moments were uneventful if you discount the cadre of specialists outside her door. It was after she died that things got serious. That was all a very long time ago. When the money ran out and it became clear that we couldn't sustain them all, we had to decide which patients we couldn't save. I'd been with the company for the better part of a decade by then. I remember Melanie breaking down in tears during the board meeting, and Bill having to excuse himself to be sick in the restroom. This was a failure that we took personally. So personally that for a while I was spending nights taking calls from colleagues and talking them out of suicide. You can see why they would consider it. It would have been a poetic kind of atonement. Generations of patients had placed their lives in our hands, and we'd failed them. The earliest patients had the lowest probability of success due to the imperfect vitrification processes they used in the 20th and early 21st centuries. Eighty-three early patients were selected. Their polished chrome doers were stacked against a cinder block wall and their data files were updated. Distant ancestors were tracked down and contacted, most of whom neither knew nor cared that they had an ancestor in suspension and they weren't much interested in the disposition of their remains. She never had children, never got married. There was no one to call, no one to care that the account had changed by one when I turned them over for disposal. The unit is fairly easy to maintain. The temperature isn't as well regulated as I'd like, but I can't get it as cold as we had at the facility. But I do what I can. Three years ago, last August, I nearly lost her to a storm that kept me away from home longer than expected. In my mind, I could see the sweating canister as the temperature climbed. I could see that crimson hair hanging in lank, wet strands while decomposition set in. Autolysis, cell rupture, her skin blistering, slippage, irreversible damage. Everything we as mortal beings fear and everything we had protected her from for a better part of a century. And her face, well, achingly beautiful. That wasn't the worst of it. If her brain began to thaw, what part of her would be lost first? Language skills? Motor function? Impulse control? Memory? I could imagine her life as a map, traced in sepia, on immaculate folds of gray matter, the roads, waterways, borders, and landmarks of her heart, erased one ruptured cell at a time. I couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. I had to get to her and stop it. I nearly knocked the basement door off its hinges, my heart pounding like a hammer. But there, there she was, enclosed, sealed, regulated, and cold. 
Liquid nitrogen levels were low, but not dry. Cold enough. If I had been another six hours, it might have been too late. That was the moment. Knowing that I'd almost lost her, I could no longer pretend that I could store her here forever. I had to start planning for her revival. The next morning I came to on the floor. Empty bottle just out of reach. My head pounding and my gut in revolt. When I opened my eyes in the half-light there, there was a, a face in front of me, like I'd woken in a bed beside someone meant to be there. And in my half-conscious state, I thought it was her. I reached out to touch her. My fingers struck the hard, cold steel of the doer. I haven't traveled since. I bought a green pen. I wrote the words over and over again in a notebook that I used for nothing else. And I carried the picture of the laughing girl from room to room as I thought about what it meant to revive her. I practiced until I couldn't tell the difference between her handwriting and my own. I tried to put myself in her place. Young, unafraid, confident that the future would be better, brighter, and that she'd be welcomed there. I write the words, and for the six seconds that it takes, I think I can feel what she felt in those moments. The stroke across the T is emphatic. The flourish on the D is full of anticipation of a day when all of her dreams will come true. They've been working backwards, last in, first out. The synthetics are good. I've seen them. Like uh, Lassiter. He was a narrow suspended not too long after her. Thirty years, maybe. And he'd taken to it fine. Everything about her that matters is still there. The memory of her first kiss. The last goodbye. All the events that made her or broke her. All of the things that made her smile. What she really wanted, I tell myself, is to come back. I'll probably be fired. <laughs> Who am I kidding? I'll definitely be fired. But once they know I have her... They'll have to do it, won't they? We don't talk much about what happened all those years ago. When we do, we refer to it as the crisis, and we don't look at each other in the eye. If they know that she's still here, and that they can bring her back, they won't have a choice. And they can't have me arrested, not when they would have destroyed her. If we believe our own marketing materials, I stop them from committing murder. I comfort myself with this thought, and last of the bourbon. I've laid in a bottle of something pink and bubbly. It seemed like the right kind of welcome. Whether or not she'll be able to taste it's another matter. Tomorrow. Tonight? I'll pass out like I have every night, with her picture nearby and her words echoing in my head. It made about as much sense as wishing on a star. It could never be done. People who had never even heard of a stem cell thought we'd just grow them brand new bodies, just like their old one. We're not going to grow encephalitic clones in a tank and age them to their 20s. That's not how revival works. That's not how it's ever going to work. Her future was a place, and I am a native of it. I know the terrain, I know the weather, and I know that this isn't the future she wanted. This isn't what she meant. 
This is as I wish to be restored. It was a naive hope on her part. I have a lot of hopes of my own, equally naive. But the main one, the one that I cling to as consciousness fades away with her picture pressed against my heart, is this. I hope that she forgives me. Her future was a place and I am a native of it. I know the terrain. I know the weather. And I know that this isn't the future she wanted. This isn't what she meant. There's a whole bunch of truisms and internet-era jokes that bore me rigid, and the whole family of Where's My Jetpack is neck and neck with how many times it's been Back to the Future today for the first ones to be thrown into the landfill and buried until they're either no longer radioactive or funny again, or both, or whichever happens first. But what Christie's done with this story, and that sequence in particular, is amazing to me. She's drilled under the layers of worthless memory and uncovered the single, brave, awful truth that lies at the heart of a lot of what appeals to me about science fiction, something that, oddly enough, Shakespeare nails. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. He's talking about death, and of course, Star Trek VI, but those last two lines are where Will puts down the ball and Christie picks it up and runs it the rest of the way in. Her heroine here says nothing, does nothing, and yet is the bravest character in this story. She reached the end of her life, and instead of accepting that things were over, she decided to take a leap into the unknown. She decided that the future would be better, and if the future was better, she wanted to see it. And if the future wasn't better, she wanted to be there to help make it better. Like I say, courage. There'll be a lot of discussion, I have no doubt, about where the protagonist's actions, the guy, not the lady, sit on the romantic, creepy axis in this story, and frankly, knock yourselves out. For me, though, this is a story that sits absolutely side by side with that of Mary the Revival in Transmetropolitan. Written by Warren Ellis and with art by Derek Robertson, Transmetropolitan is the story of Spider Jerusalem, a journalist in the medium future, far enough in for there to be transhumanism, not so far in that everything goes all Arthur C. Clarke, technology is magic, food pills. It's a political thriller, a broad comedy, and an extended riff on what it means and costs to be a principal journalist, and it's brilliant. It's one of those books that's written across myself. Sure, you'll go on Tumblr and you'll see all the violence and bell disruptor jokes, but there's a hell of a book under those, and it's all wrapped up in stories like Mary's. Mary is a revival, exactly the situation here, but it's taken the next couple of steps down the line. Mary is revived, she has a new body grown, she's dropped into a hostel for revivals and effectively left her off. But she's wonderful, she's brilliant, she's a photojournalist with 64 years of good, hard, storied life, and it doesn't matter. Ellis sums up the future's attitude to Mary, and I feel the future's attitude that the protagonist fears in this story in one heartbreaking paragraph. Mary sticks to the alleyways where the light and noise of the city is screened a little. And she talks. To anyone who will listen, she tells of how she was revived, tells it in cold, quiet, 
terrible detail. She has a photographer's eye. She's made a still documentary of her new life up in her chilled head, and she tells stories of the past. Great, rich, warm, human stories of Stephen Hawking mapping the universe from a wheelchair, of dancing with children in Zimbabwe dust and walking through Moscow snow with Mikhail Gorbachev. John Kennedy playing grab-ass in the White House, Nelson Mandela laughing at dirty jokes on Joburg Street, a kid walking in front of a Chinese tank. The stories that make us great. Mary will live for maybe another century, but her story is over, because you wouldn't have it any other way. Mary takes the same step as the revival here, the same moment of absolute courage and faith, and she's rewarded the exact way Christy describes. This isn't the future she wanted. This isn't what she meant. But she gets lucky. Mary gets a way to make the future work for her, and that plot brings me joy. It's one of my favourite things in my favourite book. I choose to believe the revival in Christie's story, here, has the same kind of luck. And the beauty of it, the genius of what Christie's done, is of course I don't know for sure. None of us do. We take the step anyway. Thanks, Christie. Greetings and salutations, Escapodians. Assistant Editor Nathan here with the feedback for episode 440, Canterbury Hollow by Chris Lawson. This was the story of a society where you are politely notified two weeks before the government forcibly ends your life because scarcity or something. Reaction was almost universally unimpressed. People cited the lack of depth to the characters as a primary reason, with the story structure and intrusive narration a close second. There was even critique of the world-building, which eventually and thankfully led to a more interesting discussion. A deranged mind said, While I could understand the first generation needing to do something like that, I couldn't understand how it kept on happening. If there's a society that's willing to accept that you need to die if your number is drawn, then why not reverse it and have something like a birthright lottery? I'd expect that would be a lot easier to sell that than institutionalized murder to maintain zero population growth. I can't imagine the societal pressure that would be in place against pregnancy. What do you mean you're pregnant? Remember how Uncle Joe died last year? Do you want to make somebody else die for your selfishness? Matt Weller was the devil's advocate for most of the subsequent conversation, responding to this in particular. Maybe, or maybe society would just adapt to a new view of death. I've thought that a lot lately, with some people close to me having miscarriages and seeing how it devastates them. I'm not belittling their trials at all, at all, but to take a higher level clinical view... That kind of personal investment in a baby has really only been very recent. From the beginning of humans to less than 100 years ago, families had 10 or more kids in the hopes they would come out 20 years later with three survivors. That's not to say that they didn't care or didn't suffer, just that their relationship with it was different, more pragmatic. Well, that's all we have for this week. Join us next week when we are very pragmatic about the comments for episode 441. See you then! Four bucks gets you a coffee. That coffee gets you a couple of hours of extra wakefulness, 240 or so calories, and maybe some syrup. That's it. You have, at the end of the cup, nothing to show for your investment of time, money, and digestive tract. You can do better. Half that coffee, two bucks, that gets you a month's subscription to Escape Pod. That means you get these episodes, but you also get premium content once that starts rolling out, and we get two bucks less a month to find which, weirdly, is actually more useful to us than individual donations. You can do that too, don't get me wrong, 
and you can decide which by clicking on the donate button on Escape Pod. Now let's talk about the other two bucks, the other half of the coffee. You're going to use those to go to Matt Wallace's website and buy two books from him. Slingers, 30 Seconds Over Hanoi, and Slingers, One Fall to Finish are available from him right now for two bucks. They are the first two in a series of five dealing with the last, best, worst death sport in human history. A single, stable wormhole exists, and when no one can monetize or weaponize it, it's handed over to sport, and it becomes part of slinging. Slinging is judo mixed with medieval warfare. If you lose in judo or another combat sport, you get to tap out, or the fight gets stopped. If you lose in a slinger match, you get thrown through the wormhole. The wormhole that opens tens of thousands of feet up in the Earth's atmosphere. And you're not wearing a parachute. You are famous before you die, but it takes a while. There's a long, rich tradition of combat sports being used as a lens to explore dystopian SF, which starts at Rollerball and Death Race, and runs all the way up through stuff like Gamer and, in a less violent way, Ready Player One. It's one of the most interesting subgenres to me, using the idea of these rock stars and high adrenaline violence as a means of exploring both the hero's journey and the realization that society, the very society that has created these people, has to change, and ironically, these people are the only ones who can change it. Matt excels at this sort of thing, and the books are written with a wry, very unusual viewpoint that combines with the full-blooded action to hit you with a one-two combo of awesome. Also, if you buy them direct from him, and the link is in the show notes, you've spent two bucks, you've got two books, you've stuck it to Amazon, and you've done all of that without leaving your seat. You didn't even need the coffee. Oh, and one last thing. I'm in Slingers. Kind of. Trust me. You'll know it when you see me. A skateboard will return next week with Those Were Pearls That Were His Eyes by Daniel Marcus. Then, as now, it will be a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I'll see you then too, but I will leave you with this quote from one of the greatest British philosophers, real and unreal, in history. Looking at the cake is like looking at the future. Until you've tasted it, what do you really know? And then, of course, it's too late. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun.